0: Welcome to episode 26 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine.
1: I'm Anna Reeser, co founder and co editor in chief of Lady Science. And I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor in chief of Lady Science.
0: And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor.
1: Before we jump into the episode, a couple of things, not necessarily housekeeping, but one thing, just coming at the end of this year, I wanted to say thank you uh, on behalf of all of the hosts for listening this year and to all of our listeners who have been with us since the beginning, thank you. And those of you who have just found us, thank you to you too. I hope you continue in with us for the next year. And speaking of the next year, we are uh, filling out our uh, schedule. And so we just wanted to put it out there for you guys that if there is a topic that you wanna hear us talk about, do a deep historical dive on it, um, come at it with our usual irreverent uh, humor, uh, let us know. Uh, you can tweet <laughs> at us or you can leave it as a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, but we're we're happy to hear your suggestions for next year. And last thing is, um, speaking of reviews on Apple Podcasts, um, just a reminder that it is incredibly helpful if you leave us ratings and reviews so that new listeners can find us. Um, it is one of the best ways for new people to find us so that we can get onto apple's whatever algorithm they have to get us on their front page or whatever so but that would be extremely helpful um so that can be your christmas present to us okay well speaking of
2: gifts uh since it is the winter holidays and many of us are you know engaged in gift giving gift receiving fondly remembering the gifts of times past uh we thought that we would (laughs) talk in this episode about the history and culture of scientific toys So later on in this episode, we will talk to writer and historian Rebecca Onion about her work on the history of childhood and scientific culture to get some broader context on this idea, but I thought it would be fun for us to get a little nostalgic and talk about some science toys from our own childhoods, or maybe ones we coveted and never had. I have a long list of stuff like that. (laughs) (laughs) But first I want to kind of lay out a, a very brief history of scientific toys. So in order for there to be scientific toys, experimental science not only had to exist in its modern form, which more or less came into being in the early modern period and especially in the 18th century but it also needed to be popular enough that people would be interested in buying or paying to see demonstrations of scientific apparatus for men in sci- or for men of science demonstrations of experiments would happen in places like the royal society or in universities but science was also fast becoming an interest of regular people too so to serve that interest and what ultimately became that market science especially experiments, uh, was popularized in the 18th century by things like exhibitions, lecture demonstrations, popular science books. Um, Scientific demonstrations were popular for edification and entertainment, and people could make a living traveling around demonstrating scientific principles for audiences and interested amateurs. These kinds of lectures, often given by instrument makers or scholars who wanted to make extra money, would involve demonstrations with instruments uh, like uh, the famous air pump, which you may have encountered is a device for, you know, demonstrating physical theories like the vacuum, things like that.
0: Uh, so maybe at first thought, there's something a little bit delightful about this image of attending an experimental lecture in, in the 18th century or in like the early modern era. So I can't help but picture, uh, you know, men in fancy frock coats or women in giant hats, and uh, scientific instruments with lots of like cool fiddly knobs and dials. But I do want to point out here that we would probably have found some of these demonstrations pretty shocking. Uh, so we mentioned a ha- an air pump earlier, and uh, the. Um, scientist Robert Boyle uh, was known for showing off his air pump and doing demonstrations with it. Uh, And John Evelyn, who was a 17th century writer, uh, once described attending a demonstration that Boyle put on. And here's the thing. Um, Anna just said before that this was used sometimes to describe the making of a vacuum. And, uh, the way that the, uh, vacuum was demonstrated is putting small animals inside the air pump and then asphyxiating yes. them. Um, ew, terrible. Uh, this is Evelyn's description of it. I went to the society where were diverse experiments by mis- in Mr. Boyle's pneumatic engine. We put in a snake, but could not kill it by exhausting the air only made it extremely sick. Side note, I want to know how they knew the snake was extremely sick. No, you
2: probably don't, because anyway. it was, like, probably thrashing around and, ugh, oh, God.
0: Yeah. Um, and then, anyway, Evelyn goes on to say, but the chick died of convulsions outright in short space. So that's lovely. Um, and he did this with lots of other small animals. <laughs> Thankfully... Lectures and experimental demonstrations weren't just about asphyxiating small animals. Um, Itinerant lectures would also be called upon by wealthy people who were interested in collecting scientific instruments and curiosities um, and to advise them on the purchase of a telescope or the best place to acquire rare specimens. And uh, scientific toys kind of come out of this practice because as time went on more and more people want to buy scientific instruments and learn about science, and uh, science became a more significant part of children's education. Uh, So in the 19th century, um, many popular science books and articles were written by women who saw themselves as part of this tradition that said that it was the job of mothers to educate children about God's creation. Uh, And those writings encouraged at-home experimentation and observation. And around the same time, simple science toys that demonstrated some scientific principle uh, became popular. Uh, and some of these we're kind of still familiar with today, like uh, Newton's Cradle or The, the Drinking Bird, <clears throat> um, which I actually had to look, I couldn't remember what Newton's Cradle was, so I had to look it up. And uh, for those of you who are trying to do the same thing, it's the thing where there's like a bunch of uh, steel balls hanging um, and you hit one on one end and it makes the one on the other end go and then they go back and forth and you see them in like dentist offices and stuff.
1: Yeah, and I I also see them like in movies and TV shows where the main character that has them is like a psycho or something.
0: Yes. It's weird. It's a weird thing. (laughs) It is. Like they tick back and forth in this meditative way that is also slightly creepy.
1: And I, I just like a little anecdote that demonstrates this the way that this went in the 19th century. Um, uh, Humphrey Davy used to do chemistry experiments um, and lectures for the public. And Jane Marseille attended one or several um, and it ignited her interest in chemistry. And then she wrote conversations on chemistry, which was encouraged um, young girls to do chemistry in the home. Uh, And then that book went on to inspire Michael Faraday, um, who was working as an apprentice in uh, the publisher uh, where Marseille's book was being printed. So, uh, (laughs) just a demonstration of how like this kind of this science, this public culture of like experimentation and science, like really caught uh, in the 19th century.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's, there's another book um, that is in the collection of the Science History Institute, where I work when I'm not doing lady science things, that it's called The Fairyland of Chemistry. It is the most, like, saccharine Victorian thing ever, and I kind of love it, uh, but the whole thing is it's just, like, different kind of fairies, like, come together and like do dances or like hook arms and that makes different kinds of molecules. And it's a way of mm-hmm. explaining like how elements and molecules work and it has very adorable drawings. Um, <laughs> but it feels like very much in this tradition of like, we're going to uh, teach children science and especially like girl children science.
1: Girl children.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, these like uh, fairy, fairy creatures and like little mythological Beings at the bottom of the garden was like a very popular trope for that kind of writing, like the water yeah. babies and things like that.
1: Yeah, fairyland is science.
2: Yes. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. a lot of uh, books that have fairyland in the title that are like science books for children.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, So other science toys that we'd recognize today um, also began to emerge at this time as well. Um, This is around around the 1840s is when uh, chemistry sets start being marketed. Um, And also middle class people transformed the sort of fancy tradition of wealthy people creating cabinets of curiosities into the kind of collecting that we're a little more familiar with uh, now, where people purchase kind of pre-assembled collections of rocks and gems and shells. This was also when a lot of objects that were originally scientific tools really uh, became toys. Um, So for example, spinning tops and yo-yos and kaleidoscopes all come from this tradition of demonstrating natural phenomenon. Uh, And Victorian children also learned about science using modern wonders like the camera obscura or kinetoscopes or telescopes and microscopes and other optical instruments.
1: And the toy trade really began to take off during the Industrial Revolution when manufacturing technologies and methods made mass production of these objects possible and profitable. And in the United States, the toy industry was just getting off the ground in the interwar period, just as the popularity and prestige of science was really reaching kind of a, a fever pitch following the First World War and chemistry sets, uh, which I think might be the most iconic scientific toy ever, um, they were extremely popular, uh, despite even some reservations people had about the appalling uses to which chemistry had been put during during the First War. But the chemistry industry was booming, and chemistry sets were used by marketers as a way to encourage people read in big letters, boys, um, <laughs> to, co- <laughs> to consider careers in science and industry and to train them in the habits of mind that were seen as essential for scientists and engineers. And I think uh, another example are model kits and model making toys, uh, which are to the future engineer as chemistry sets are to the future lab uh, scientists and historian Ruth Oldenziel has written about an interwar model automobile contest sponsored by the Fisher Body Craftsman's Guild, which was an organization run by the Fisher company that made automobile bodies for companies like GM. The contest was for boys who would build an intricate model of a Napoleonic coach, and the contest was used in ads for Fisher. These images showed how the contest was designed to promote and codify a gendered world of technical expertise. Boys who participate in the contest were socialized into becoming technophiles who would presumably go on to take their place as engineers and managers in technology firms like Fisher. So the thing
2: that these kind of aspirational scientific toys have in common, and it is different from um, toys in the 19th century, is that in the 20th century, science education for children was not, it, it was less about like, coming to know the wonders of god or or um you know a general kind of well-rounded middle class uh education uh in the 20th century it really became about steering children toward a f- future career as a scientist like with the chemistry sets or building the um the model of the coach to kind of like oh, i would be an engineer when i grew up and and in Inspiring this love of science in children is something that came to be understood as like a larger like cultural heritage of being an American that like this is like what we do in America so in the, like I said in 19th century science education was um, particularly useful in the kind of tradition we've talked about of like women writers who are writing these scientific texts for children about like coming to you know, science is a way to appreciate God's creation, and teaching them to see God's work in the working of nature. But by the 20th century, this spiritual component has been replaced by the values of sort of like individual accomplishment. You know, that very classic, like scientifically minded American know-how. This, this whole thing that we're hopelessly mired in in our present day. So this model for the 20 for 20th century science toys in general, um, that they are objects to encourage structured play with a long-term goal. They're supposed to encourage certain kinds of thinking, promote curiosity, prepare children for a scientific workforce. Um, And that becomes increasingly important in American society through the Second World War and into the post-war period. Um, So that's something that I wanna talk with Rebecca Onion about in our interview. So I will leave that here. For now, cliffhanger about the importance of dun, dun. science education and uh, childhood in the I don't know World War II post-war period.
1: Um, cliffhanger for like thirteen minutes.
2: Yeah, now you just have to get <laughs> through the rest of the episode with us. But so what? I, <laughs> what I wanted to do is talk about some of these toys that we we may remember fondly or not, and and also about. I want to get a little more granular into how gender plays into this. So obviously, like, the gendered marketing of toys, like, all toys is one of those things that, you know, feminist harpies like to shriek about. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think that in the case of science toys and what we've kind of been talking about, about the way that science is implicated, uh, particularly in the United States, in, like, good citizenship in a way like that has some pretty important implications so what i did is i made a uh, i made a list of toys i checked it twice that's not true i checked it once uh (laughs) and i thought we could kind of do it like a like a draft so we could just take turns and pick something that we just really want to talk about off of this list and kind of just spin out some stuff on these toys that we might remember and you the listener might remember having as a kid or buying for your kids or whatever. So, who wants to go first?
0: I'll, I'll go first. I'll go first and talk about uh, my my favorite uh, historical chemistry set with weird gendered overtones. Not even overtones, just weird gendered language. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this isn't a, a chemistry set particularly from my childhood. Uh, it is one from the 1950s that is a part of the Science History Institute collection of chemistry sets and science toys, which is pretty epic and amazing. Um, So uh, this is, it was made by the Gilbert uh, Company, which they made a lot of these um, sort of mid-century era chemistry sets in many colors and varieties and uh, focuses. Um, this one it is pink. It has <laughs> oh, uh, boy. two girls on it. Um, one looking through a uh, a microscope, and there are some test tubes and uh, like a little um, notebook where you could write some notes in it. All of which is fine. Uh, the title of this chemistry set is. Lab technician set for girls. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, man.
0: It's, it's just so perfect. And, and it is interesting looking through uh, the chemistry sets that the Institute has because there are, like, so many of them where it's a little boy on it. And then we have this one that's four girls. And then, like, when you get a little bit later, like, some of them from the, uh, like, 70s and 80s, they're like, oh, wait, we should have some people on here who aren't white boys. Um, and then once in a while, they'll see, like, a boy and a girl. Or, like, a white boy and a black boy. Or I don't think any of them have black girls on them because they weren't getting that radical or anything. Um, but just, like, the way the really blatant way in which these are marketed in, um, in gendered fashion is just like, it speaks for itself. But, but this one is so blatant that it delights me with horror. <laughs> yeah. Well, you
1: know, I've even noticed today, like um, I have lots of friends with kids and um, it's really hard not to buy gendered toys just because that's what's available, yeah. you know? Um, but I've noticed kind of, an attempt at diversity on the packaging and for stuff like that like diversity means a black boy and a white girl or an asian yeah. person like <laughs> it's like that's the gamut of it like rarely will you still see like an asian girl or a black girl or a latina girl on yeah the packaging for these types of toys oh i don't know the things that i remember playing with i don't remember having not saying that i didn't i just don't remember having like a chemistry set or a crystal growing set or anything like that um the one i remember the most is um a trunk full of toy dinosaurs that my brother and i (laughs) used to play with and we had like a a floor scenescape in which the, like, with, like, streams and mountains and terrain and stuff that, that we could, like, move the dinosaurs on. Um, and, like, this was a massive endeavor. Like, if we are going to play dinosaurs for the day, like, it was <laughs> everyone's not going anywhere because we have to put this whole thing out on the floor and it's going to be a day. Um, and it was really fun. And um, my there's a family video that we still have um my dad was filming us playing but he was trying to do it like it was stop motion so he would record pause and then we would move the dinosaurs on the scenescape <laughs> and then he would start it again and <laughs> there's this one one thing where like we had a wind up t uh, rex and you just see it like gradually like <laughs> moving through a crowd of dinosaurs. <laughs> This is amazing. (laughs) This sounds amazing. Yeah, somewhere. I don't know, like, uh, I was really into pterosaurs at the time, and you can just hear me in the background and, like, see, like, a little pterosaur dip in front of the camera, and I'm, like, going, whoa, (laughs) whoa. And that is scientifically correct here what a pterosaur sounded like. (laughs) (laughs) I, I
2: am so delighted by this.
1: Uh, I know what you mean
2: about like like toys or sets of toys or whatever that like it's like a whole day <laughs> where you're just like yeah, we're right. doing dinosaurs today. Prepare yourself. <laughs> and your parents yeah. are just like, Oh god <laughs> This is such a production. Yeah.
1: Yep. yep. Oh, yeah, wow. it was a lot of fun. Um
2: did you also like like that? Did you read did you have like lots of books about dinosaurs and read about them and learn about them? what they ate and all that stuff to, like, make your make your dinosaurs yeah. accurate.
1: <laughs> yeah, we had, because um, this was in the age of, like, the, um, like, pop-up books, you know, and then you could, like, pull, like, tabs out and the dinosaurs would move and stuff. And so yes. I remember there was one that we had where it was, like, a brontosaurus, which is maybe why it's, like, currently my favorite uh, dinosaur as an adult, <laughs> like, I just thought it was the cutest thing to pull out the tab and watch its like long neck and little head like go towards the food when I pulled the
0: tab.
2: That's extremely good. <laughs> that
0: sounds. I have to say that sounds distinctly familiar. Yes. Like I'm sure many books had that. Yeah. But like I now have a very strong sense memory of doing the same thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a great way to learn. I think. Yeah. You know, like I re- I remember distinctly what brontosaurs ate because of that. You
2: know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I feel like I have,
2: <laughs> I have stronger memories of like Land Before Time and Dinotopia than I do of like real stuff that I actually did learn about dinosaurs. Because I was just like yeah. a huge dweeb as a kid. Yeah. Still, I am a huge dweeb. But I must yeah. have read Dinotopia like a hundred times. I like, I'm the local librarian was probably just like, oh, it's you again. It's the Dinotopia kid. <laughs> here.
1: Well, I'm like, I don't even know what maybe in my knowledge about dinosaurs that I had from like the 80s and early 90s is even correct anymore, to be honest.
2: (laughs) That's the thing,
1: like, right? How
2: many times have we gone back and forth about whether, like... Feathers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, don't, like, aren't we, like, maybe not sure that brontosaurus is for a thing? Yes, that's what I was gonna (laughs) say. Brontosaurus, and then there's, like, uh...
2: Is it an Allosaurus or a baby T-Rex? We're not sure. Like, and like a lot of things that are like actually two different animals, at di- or like if there are different stages of their lives. Like I feel like there's like new dinosaur yeah. no- news every <laughs> every like yeah, three yeah. months, and I can't keep up anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah. which is yeah. Sad. turns out a bunch of like yeah.
2: I would prefer <laughs> to be keeping up with dinosaur news to keeping up with the actual news. The other thing I was thinking about for dinosaurs real, is that I always thought, like, do you remember hearing, like, those news stories about, like, a kid who finds, like, a fossil T-Rex skull in his backyard or whatever? Oh, yeah. yeah. I never envied anybody more than those, those <laughs> yeah, children right? who discovered, like, yes. a nest of fossilized eggs. I would just, like, think about it all the time. Like, how cool it would be. And I'd be on the news. And then the museum would give me a bunch of money for my dinosaur eggs. Man, Yeah, there was
1: actually a time when me and uh, my best friend from elementary school um, actually like started digging up her backyard, (laughs) and like it was heinous. Like her parents came home and were just like, "What have you done?" (laughs) Oh no! (laughs) And we were digging like
0: wide and deep. Be like boring and analytical for a second, or maybe not boring. But uh, get out of here! I um, know. <laughs> uh, I do think it's interesting though that like like there was when we were talking about the kind of move in the twentieth century away from like learning about the wonders of the world and towards like you must have a career like so much of that is around this idea of like play must be structured play must have a purpose yeah um but like what are we like sitting here feeling super joyful about is the idea of like creating <laughs> weird universes with our dinosaurs yeah and and like uh, and like yeah like we wanted to make sure we got like our facts right facts whatever uh but but we wanted to like the idea of this open space, it's been like dinosaur day on the floor mm-hmm. of fam- the family room, moving around all your dinosaurs and making stop motion videos. <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> delights me so much. Um, and it's just, it's, and that's what we all have like the most distinct memories of doing those kinds of play, uh, as opposed to kind of st- more structured play. I, I don't think I ever had like a kit. But I remember having um, books that were, like, kitchen science kinds of things where Mm -hmm. it's, like, test the pH of things or mix these two things you'll find um, together and they will do an explosion. (laughs) And I have, I feel like, less memory of that than of, yeah, like, playing with dinosaur toys or building things with Legos or other kinds of things that involved uh telling stories and world building and also like putting information like into my story
2: yeah Mm -hmm. i mean i will i'll 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 just offer the exception to the rule for me personally as a like very young i wanted to be a marine biologist that was like what i wanted to be a marine biologist until like my junior year of high school (laughs) earlier childhood for sure like it was all dinotopia all wall-to-wall dinotopia all the time and, like, fantastical <laughs> stuff. But I do have, like, memories of, like, thinking about things that I could do or things that I could acquire as a child as being part of this, like, longer-term goal. And it, like, happened, like, later on in my mm-hmm. childhood, like, not when I was, like, really, really a kid, but thinking about, like, things like like sea monkeys or like I had a bug catching kit because I was like really interested in science and I already decided I wanted to you know be a biologist and like I live in the desert there's not a lot of marine biology going on (laughs) here so I you know I reasoned that it would be like still productive for me to like uh investigate other creatures that I could find and I was like really into catching bugs for a couple of summers and like investigating all the bugs that live in our yard, which, again, I live in the desert. We don't even have that many bugs here. Like, <laughs> uh-huh. there's just not a lot of things growing and living uh, compared to other places that have, you know, water. But the one thing that I wanted so badly was freaking sea monkeys. I just... <laughs> because I was like, those are sea creatures. And I my parents absolutely refused to like have an aquarium we had fish when i was little and they died and it was like a big pain in the ass for my dad and he was like absolutely not we're not doing that anymore no aquarium but i was like i just spent all this time like trying to convince my parents to give me some sea monkeys and that i would feed them and i would make sure they didn't die and i would take care of it and i would observe their behavior <laughs> and i finally got some sea monkeys and it was like the most disappointing thing ever <laughs> Because the the kit, like, I don't know if it used to be cooler. Maybe I'll, after this I'll look some up and see if there's some vintage sea monkeys we can post. But mm-hmm. the kit that I got was, like, the whole thing was, like, the size of, you know, two soda cans side by side. Maybe even a little smaller. Made of plastic. It's just, like, a container. A clear plastic mm-hmm. container. And then you get, like, a little packet of these, like, shrimp eggs And you get, like, the mix to make the water salty or whatever. (laughs) And it Mm -hmm. has whatever it needs, and then it has food. And our sea monkeys were, they was a dud. None of my sea monkeys hatched. And I would, like... Oh, no! You know how it has, like, the container has, like, a little built-in magnifying glass so that when the sea monkeys swim in front of it, you can see them magnified. And I would just stand in front of the kitchen window where the sea monkeys were with my face, like, pressed up against the little magnifying glass, looking at like the little floating particles of like salt or whatever and trying to i'm trying to be like is that one is that one and my mom's like i think they're bigger than that like yeah they're not microscopic <laughs> like you can Aww. see them it was so disappointing to me and then so i never i never even tried again that why i was just like that's Aww. when i became cynical it's like oh, sea monkeys are bullshit <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think like looking at this list of stuff, like you've got sea monkeys on here, rock collections, bug catching kit, um, magnifying glass. I remember another one that I had was like a, a beginner birding thing, Ooh, and then yeah. I had like a butterfly catching net. And how many of these toys like harken back to nineteenth century natural history crazes? Absolutely, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and like definitely, those are things that. Because, like, I think I'm like you, Rebecca, like, I might have done the kitchen science stuff, like, measuring a pH, but it was, like, getting out in Mm -hmm. the world, collecting things on my own, and then, like, hoping that my sea monkeys hatch or something so I can observe them. You know, like, stuff like that. Like, very hands-on, out-in-the-world type of stuff. Um, Those were the things, I think, that probably got me most excited. And I think still get me, I don't know, still get me excited. Yeah, I think (laughs) about, like, the trope, like, the pop culture trope
2: of raising a butterfly from a caterpillar as like Mm -hmm. an activity that children do and the way that that trope changes like you could imagine that what is the name of that science in latin butterflies
1: butterflyology
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes that's Um, it you're right yes Uh, oh god Do you mean the process of going from caterpillar to butterfly? No, that's metamorphosis,
2: of? okay? Also, the <laughs> mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. Like, I'm on it, Rebecca. <laughs> 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 but I just mean that, like, in the 19th century, like, the there are, like, moral lessons attached to, like, the life cycles of creatures, right? That you would observe these things as, like, a, a moral lesson in, like, God's processes or whatever. And then, you know, for me, like, I understood these things as, like, specifically about, like, I I am a miniature scientist, and I am going to go out into the world and get this caterpillar, and I'm going to observe and document its, like, metamorphosis, and that is, like, an important thing for me to do, because I'm told that, like, it's important for me to know mm-hmm. about this stuff, and for me to have, like, a scientific mind, and... Be curious about the world, so you can kind of like trace that yeah. that change in the way that children are expected to engage with these ideas. And then, like, were there? I wanted to just ask, like, generally, I guess, to kind of like wrap up. Like, were there things like? What was like your experience of of gender and science, like, as a child?
0: I I feel like on the one hand, it was very much like. I can do anything, but also when I think about like how much it's ingrained in me that like I'm not good at math, and I have never been good at math, and therefore science is never really going to be a thing for me. And it's hard not to, in retrospect, thinking about think about that as a gendered thing, um, despite the fact that no one would have ever explicitly said science is bad for you to do because you're a girl. I think it came Uh through this idea of being bad at math.
1: I feel like I got that from school and maybe my peers. I don't really feel like I ever got that at home because so much of like, me and my brother are only three years apart. um, And so much of the play that we did, if we weren't playing with our friends, was together. Um, And so like I would play with his toys, he would play with my toys. And we'd do it together, and, like, then we had communal toys, like the dinosaurs. So, like, I don't know. I don't I don't think yeah. we ever... We didn't really get that at home, which, you know, makes sense for my parents being who they are. But it did eventually go the same way as what you were saying, Rebecca, and I that definitely yeah, came I from got, school like, and my peers.
2: I had kind of a similar experience to you, Layla. Like, my brother and I are 13 months apart, so we, like, like the age gap was even closer, and so we played together all the time and like there w- I don't have like a distinct experience of that like as a child but like as we got older <laughs> there's definitely like divergence of like interest that kind of went in a way that you know I don't know that I was ever specifically like pushed toward anything I do know that I am like in terms of like scientific toys and scientific play I <laughs> am terrified of uh electricity, natural gas, fire <laughs> um uh really intense chemistry like acids and things like that. So like there's a certain point at which I was like, yo, I'm not <laughs> I'm not into that. So my brother's like literally setting the lawn on fire with rocket engines and at that point I have like <laughs> that I've decided I've learned about the things that my proclivities with science, are more about, like, collecting and observing and not blowing stuff up, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that, like, uh, it's yeah. interesting to reflect on not having, like, a personal experience of this, but then, like, if you look at the way that these toys are marketed and the way that they're, you know, designed and, like, pushed, like, in terms of who they're being sold to, like, that's, I think, where that comes in. So even if you get a little bit of it from school, none of it from home, but, like, yeah. the larger marketplace of, like, scientific childhood is, like, extraordinarily gendered, even though our experience of it might not be. So it's kind of interesting that, like, are yeah. are are they do are we doing focus groups anymore? Or are they, like, <laughs> even bothering to, like, learn about yeah. the market for these? Or is it just, like, <laughs> we just, like, do it in a gendered way because
1: that's like, how you market toys? I don't know. This is a good time to bring on Rebecca Onion to talk about her Instead actual of- research into this thing. <laughs> Anecdotes. Instead of just our, our, our like, half yeah, we our childhoods.
0: <laughs> yes.
2: Rebecca Onion is a writer and American Studies scholar currently on staff at Slate writing about history and culture. Her book, Innocent Experiments, Childhood and the Culture of Public Science in the United States, was published in 2016 by the University of North Carolina Press. Rebecca, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about your work, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Well, to get us started, uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in the popular culture of science and childhood specifically?
3: Sure. Um, well, I have a PhD in American studies and um, I mean, it's funny because I look back at it and it's like, in some ways it seems like it came out of nowhere, but I've been interested in childhood and youth for a long time. I, even as an undergrad would write seminar papers about things related to that. Um, so that's sort of a longstanding sense of intrigue for me is just how um, cultural fixations and commitment get expressed through people's um, mostly adult understandings of what children should be doing um, and the kinds of uh, pedagogical tools that are created for them and um, cultural representations of their learning. That's been an area of interest for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I, I realized while I was writing the, the conclusion to my book, which is a good time to realize it, <laughs> that that I've <laughs> sort of been interested in this idea the question of um the inherent supposed inherent rightness of scientific thinking in childhood um ever since i was i think it was in fifth grade fourth or fifth grade we had a program called odyssey of the mind that i don't know if you guys are familiar with that at all um it might have been a northeast thing i'm not sure (laughs) 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 but um it was an enrichment program for after school and they would have you do little projects to try to get your, you know, get your mind outside the box kind of thing. Um, and I remember that we were assigned this project that was like make a better mousetrap and they they would send you home with a paper bag full of various um, little like mechanical bits um, and you're supposed to construct it. And I just remember thinking, like, I hate this so much. (laughs) Like, this is terrible. (laughs) Like, I was a real um, like words and stories person um, as as a kid, and probably now, I guess you could say. Um, And I, but I, but the was interesting about the feeling that I think stayed with me for a while is that I was like almost like ashamed of myself for not being interested. Like, I was like, what's wrong with me? Like, I I know that now is the time when I'm supposed to be like experimentally interested in the physical world um and you know I would I would never have articulated that to myself as a 10 year old um, but think looking back at it now I'm like yeah yeah I definitely thought that, that like something was unchildish about that about me not wanting to do that um, so I mean obviously that's not why I wrote this book <laughs> I wrote the book because you know I took a bunch of classes about in the history of science the history of technology and Um, childhood studies classes in graduate school and got interested in early 20th century children's literature um, and the tendency to have sort of instructional books masquerade like extremely boring instructional books masquerading as children's literature that were all about like uh, like various aspects of modernity and the contrast between that boringness and the idea that they would be entertaining to kids and like the, just like the miss total what seemed to me a total mismatch between what adults thought kids wanted at the time and maybe what kids actually wanted or whatever and like and also the fact that historian like it's very difficult for historians to know what the kids wanted all that stuff interested me intellectually and that's sort of how i got into this bigger project is through that early 20th century children's literature portal
2: so I want to take a, a like a step back and look at this like a little broader in terms of like the kind of shape of this like culture of science and its role in childhood uh in the United States like can you give us kind of like a potted history of that so where like where does this sort of begin what's kind of like the peak of it uh oh. this I like, yeah we're, sure. I mean, maybe along the lines of like this, like the science talented youngster that you write about, like,
3: yeah, yeah. sure. Um, well, one of the things that I found really interesting about the history as I looked into it more was that there was um, sort of a people come to it from a variety of different angles, of course, like anything cultural. Um, but, you know, I first became like whenever I talk to anyone in the general public about the project, everyone's always like, oh, yeah, Sputnik. So the, you know, the, the Cold War period is the time when, is it how people, well, probably because it's what people remember, you know, if they were old enough to, you know, if they're boomers, <laughs> they remember that um, as a time when people suddenly started getting very interested in science talent as a concept. Um, and so, but that's like the sort of like the national defense era um, of it. But there was a previous era starting in, progressive era. There is some stuff in the 19th century that's a little more um sort of general. It's like it, it's always inherently male focused in some ways. Although um Sally colstead who you guys probably know her work, but she did find that there's there actually was like sort of a little tradition of um uh, of expectation that girls would be doing science at home in the 19th century, um, well, like with their families, not alone in a room in the chemistry set way, but um with their families together, they would be doing sort of like parlor experimentation, um, mm-hmm. and that actually, in a way, things got worse for girls in the um, in the twentieth century because in the nineteenth century it was sort of more more expected. But um, uh, this, I'm going to ramble on this question. I can already tell. Um, <laughs> but but the, the progressive era is really when um, the influence of John Dewey, um, you know, who really loved the idea of scientific thinking in childhood and experimental thinking um, and, you know, wrote books about it and, and was obviously really influential in the progressive education movement. Um, he, I I would say that he's probably the person that I would point to who articulated it most specifically, but there's also all kinds of people doing um, like nature study education um, Again, saw like colstadt's the writer on that um but tr- trying to bring sort of nature study and science into different areas of the curriculum so like linking it with writing and linking it with um you know history but doing it that is sort of also much more multi-gendered um, in a way but and it's some of the same you start to you see some of the same rhetoric in the early 20th century around like the child's inherent capacity to do this kind of work um, that then gets used in service of national defense in the 50s, 40s and 50s. Um, so it's sort of this I- same idea of like suitedness um, or appropriateness uh, is already sort of starting to happen in the early 20th century, but then it gets um, brought up to a level of national rhetoric or nationalist rhetoric, I guess I should say, in the in the 40s and 50s.
1: So one of the things that you write about is the way that the image of the child is sort of put forward as an ideal image for the adult scientist, um, mm-hmm. this person who retains all that quote, like, childlike wonder and curiosity. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering how this plays out when we look at the larger culture of science and who we see should be a scientist and the qualities we associate with that ideal scientist.
3: Yeah. So I, I really had a lot of revelations about the, um, representation question when I was doing this work. Cause I, you know, there's a sort of a way where we talk about like, okay, well, um, the problem is that girls don't see themselves as scientists. Um, and that that's why, you know, you can't see, you can't, what is it? You can't be what you can't see, that mm-hmm. idea. So that like we, what we need is to show girls more images of women who are scientists. Um, and, but I found that for at least a hundred years, the the part of the, like the problem goes a little bit deeper than that in my mind, which has to do with the linking of qualities of like mischievousness and transgression um with boyishness and also with science. So there's a lot of that in um like probably it's the most salient in conversations about chemistry sets. Like, and that's another thing people love to talk to me about at, <laughs> at public talks, um, is you know, the boy who blew up his bedroom with the chemistry set or his basement or whatever. Um and like occasionally like every once in a while the person in that story is a girl, um, but usually not. Um and there, and that's like a idea that gets translated in a bunch of different venues. Like uh, I wrote a chapter about the Brooklyn Children's Museum, which is the first children's museum in the U.S. Um, and in the early 20th century, had a bunch of like after-school programs, and I mean, we would call them now after-school programs. I don't know. I don't think they called them that. But um, and like weekend programs, and a lot of kids would go there and kind of like made it their home in a way. Um, at least that's what the official um, represent, uh, self-representation from the museum people was. Um, but even in that venue, there were like particular kinds of science that the girls were doing and the boys were doing. And the boys would do the things that were like cu- kind of cutting edge and like a little bit scary. Like they got really into the wireless radio, um, or, uh, and they would, you know, like go up on top of the museum and string, um string wires and like there's like pictures of boys like climbing around on the top of the museum and the girls are kind of like collecting moths and um you know collecting birds like that like bird feathers you know like like the more like memorization based sort of like nature focused stuff and the boys are the ones who are really like challenging um the capacity even of their instructors to understand what they were doing um and also just kind of like freaking everyone out with their what they were doing a little bit um and so um the way that i see it kind of happening like i i just i see that in representations of well really i see it with in representations of tech people now a little bit also like this kind of like oh, i'm just like i'm sort of like otherworldly in my genius <laughs> like i don't i don't um you know i don't follow your rules <laughs> or something um <laughs> And, and the, when people in the 20th century talked about little kids who were interested in science, like that was one of the major things that they talked about was, um, the need for adults not to put limp, too many limits around what the kids were going to try to do. Um, and those kids were always, because those kids were always boys. And, and it's the kind of thing where it's like, uh, it's not, um, like, I don't know, like, is it the case that people called for mothers not to limit their boys' experimentation too much because they were boys or because that was supposed to be what science was or whatever? It's, it's a it's a little hard to discern motive in some cases, but that was definitely something that people who advocated for science, what they would call science-minded youngsters <laughs> um, would would say. And so I think that this idea that science equals mischief is like almost in some ways inherently um like exclusionary of girls. Like it doesn't, it almost doesn't even matter whether the girl, whether the person who's being represented in whatever cultural object it is is a boy or a girl. It's like the qualities that are being identified as science-mindedness are boyish qualities. Um, and and girls are not as praised for having those qualities. Um, maybe especially in 1925, but probably also now. Mm-hmm. Um, in whatever way you can quantify
1: that. It sounds interesting yeah. because when you're describing the museum and how the boys were kind of shown doing mischievous things and kind of experimenting mm-hmm. without bounds, and then the girls were collecting, it seems like what the girls were doing was more along the qualities of like 19th century natural history, where mm-hmm. as the boys were kind of doing more towards modern. Scientific methods of experimentation yeah. and things like that.
3: For sure. For sure. I remember actually, I, I remember this very clearly because of, well, you'll see why. There was an article about those wireless boys um, in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Um, and it said something like, ah, oh, the girls participate in this club, but the girls, quote, do no original work, unquote. Mm. <laughs>
1: um, Where have we heard that before? I know.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, Yeah, and and just the fact that like it's it's described these older boys that are doing. I mean, they are you know a little bit older than the other kids at the museum, but the idea is that the the people they're they're also described as like beyond the ability of the women who are because it's women who are running the museum um, beyond the ability of the women who are running the museum to help like to assist. So they're not only like beyond their female peers, they're also um, like outside of the education system which is a, um, kind of like an important sort of subply in this whole thing, too, mm. is, you know, the idea that the education system fails science-minded kids and boys and anyone who is, like, original, basically.
2: Um, yeah, their genius cannot be contained by the
3: yeah,
2: mundanity exactly. of the museum. I uh, When I was looking through your book, I sent uh, – Layla, this quote that you have here, uh, this Thorndike quote about um, boys, you know, uh, poking unlucky crabs and stealing eggs and stuff, and how like that is the true way to do science. And like, if you care about the earth and um, you know have feelings for the creatures and the quote deer plants, then that's just like silly, sentimental, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, business
3: supposed to be and i remember i can't remember if i included that part in the book but he actually includes a girl on that quote if i remember correctly but he yes. describes that he described his ideal girl as like dismembering her doll basically, basically. <laughs> so sort of being like yeah fuck you femininity like <laughs> i'm gonna rip your stuffing out like i'm on my way to science um yeah and it's just this idea that that like the the women i mean because uh like sally Colton makes the point in that book about nature study that But that was like a place for women to have, um, like science, scientifically interested women to have jobs, basically. Um, And the the decline of the nature study movement in the 30s was like a real problem. Or, you know, it was like a sort of like a sad loss of opportunity for them. Um, But it's this like, it's this twist up where that kind of science is on the one hand, like the kind that girls are encouraged to be interested in. Largely or generally, and also the kind that's devalued. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, well, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's <laughs>
2: it. <laughs> so we we've kind of covered some of the stuff about um, representation, and I think uh, mm-hmm. I'm kind of with you that the, the the interesting thing about maybe the more interesting thing about this like idea of representation and who is and is not seen as a scientist has to do with like what we consider to to be good science or to be the kind of science we want people to do but you do talk about um representation in the sources you find yeah about how you they're not often girls are not often pictured in like books or like the packaging of scientific toys but also that they're represented Mm -hmm. in a different way from boys uh yeah those like just the distract like distracted or distracting observer of like of, you know boys doing experiments or they're mm-hmm. made to made out like helpers or just like cheerleaders so are there any any things like that that
3: you oh found yeah in your
2: research that you really like
3: oh there's tons <laughs> of stuff like that yeah I mean yeah I I shouldn't yeah I should not say that there's not like a representation problem fundamentally no, 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 but no, no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah um yeah no there's tons of stuff like that I remember one of the I, I sort of I sort of took out a bunch of the stuff about the boring uh, informational books because it wasn't really fitting into the book. But um, so I can't remember whether this one made it into the book or not. But there was a series of like photographic informational books that were the story of X, so like the story of trains, the story of leather, the story of uh, rayon, um, and there's a bunch of different like series of those from the early 20th century. But in this particular one, it was photographically illustrated, um, and it was two kids that were on a train journey and it was a brother and sister and often this kind of um representational failure i guess i don't know if you could call it that um (laughs) comes when it's a brother and a sister um Mm -hmm. and the brother is like super interested in how the train works and wants to know all the details um and is constantly like asking the conductor questions and like being like sort of like a pestering pest um, and the and the sister at some point just like sits down and reads a magazine. So like there's this idea that like you know she kind of just like oh like media. I'll just do media. That's fine. I don't like want to think about anything more. Um, but <laughs> there's tons of that stuff in the chemistry set advertisements. Um, sort of sort of girls like at the elbow of the boy. Like the boy will be doing whatever experiment it is, and the girls kind of watching. Um, mm-hmm. And there's one very memorable ac gilbert chemistry set from the 50s that is a lab tech set um that's marketed to girls um which was interesting because i went and looked at the chemistry sets at the chemical heritage foundation um and and they have the they have the lab tech set and they also have the like the booklets all the instructional booklets that are inside and i was both like annoyed and disappointed to find that the instructional booklet inside the lab tech set was like the exact same <laughs> as the ones for the boys like they sort of just uh. put, they put a cover on it and they were like eh, like whatever we'll just have this pink cover that says lab set and has the two girls on it instead of the boys um but they didn't they weren't like gonna go so far as to write like whole new experiments <laughs> um but, which, you know, that's actually an interesting fact in and of itself. It deprives me of a very nice primary source, <laughs> but, but, it, but it was interesting to see. Um, there's tons of that. I looked at the records of the um, the science talent search at the Smithsonian um, and from the 40s and 50s and in the press releases describing the winners of the, you know, the what it was is the finalists from the different dates would go to DC and have like a big, basically a big party and a lot of events where they would go around and meet different scientists and learn about how science was done within the government and stuff like that. Um, So there's a lot of coverage of that, but there was also these press releases of the different finalists and what their interests were and what they wanted to do with their lives. And the way that the writers for the science service chose to emphasize the like domestic ambitions of these girls. (laughs) Like they're all, (laughs) they all wanted to do something domestic and there's all, uh, you know, or the ones that were featured, I guess I should say. Um, And there's also pictures of them um, with like the, there's one that's like a picture of a girl with a dress that she made for the banquet, the final banquet or whatever. And it's like, makes sure to make the point that she made the dress herself. Like she's like fitting on in a dressmaker's form and stuff. And then there's sure. even a picture, there's even a picture of two girl finalists looking at the Hope Diamond, which I was oh like, oh, gosh. come on. <laughs> 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 What's well, interesting to, about it to me is that it's like, it's it's actually interesting to me that the girls were even there. Like I'm like, wow, in the 40s and 50s, they were bothering to have girls be the finalists also. um I believe that the way they did it was that they, They did it by percentage, like the percentage of girls that were in the final pool, they picked like a proportionate amount to the boys or something. Um, But, but yeah, but, but, I mean, of course, like now that wouldn't be, that wouldn't stand, (laughs) but, but, you know, we still do have a couple of years ago, who was it? That like British group that was trying to get girls into science that was all about like an ad that had a bunch of lipstick in it and stuff. Um, oh, the hack dryer? Sure yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I think so. there is still stuff like that, um, you know, or like the spa science kits that get sold to kids on um, in toy stores, um, you know, which are pink and whatever. They have all kinds of girly, girly messages.
1: Well, the last so, question that I wanted to ask you is about the geographies of science and childhood that you write Mm. about, and um, the development of new spaces for children that come into play in the 20th century, with changes in the role of childhood, kind of just more generally in modernity. Um, And you mentioned um, a museum earlier, but how do Mm. these geographies interact in places like science museums in the 20th century?
3: Oh, um, well, the science museum stuff is so interesting, because it's it's like, that's a place where um, I mean, obviously, there starts to be special there start to be specialized, um, you know, an interest in having like a specifically children's museum um in the twentieth century. But there's a lot of de- debate and conversation over, you know, whether it should just be,, um, oh, like this is a adult museum, like the Museum of Natural History, um, for example, that just has kids come in. Um, Or this is like a specifically child-oriented museum and that this becomes like something that the specifically child-oriented museums will use as an advertising lever, as like a way to get donors, as a way to get people to come, as a way to get coverage. Like they're all sort of um, like figuring out a way to describe this place as like a sort of a home, but sort of a school, but sort of like a third place that kids can go. And there's something, I mean, this is not only happening in science, obviously, or like with science, like hobbyism or science extracurricular activity, because there is a ton of um, like childhood studies work on the progressive era and the way that people at that time were trying to reshape children's leisure in a way that they saw as more productive. Um, So there's like, at the time, there's also people having, you know, like playgrounds where there'd be like a quote unquote play attendant there to watch the play happen and shape it in various ways that were seen as better than just like kids going out on the street um, and kind of just like doing whatever they were going to do, which people saw as potentially like hazardous or morally corrupt or whatever other problematic thing. Um, so, a better idea maybe especially for middle class parents who'd be reading about it would be these like protected spaces um that were like especially geared towards children's interests um but for science specific activities there starts to be this feeling that like that there could be like that the answer to the question uh like how do we help kids who are not getting their science mindedness developed at school um actually like be able to take advantage of you know, we want to be able to take advantage of them in like our national life. Um, and how do we do that? In some ways, um, you know, you have a science club, you have science fairs, um, you have science museums, had a chapter on the exploratorium in San Francisco, which was one of my favorite things to write because that the guy who started it, Frank Oppenheimer is just like a very interesting person um, who was J. Robert Oppenheimer's little brother who was blacklisted and stopped being a physics professor and became a physics teacher and then founded the Exploratorium and just was like, for my purposes, (laughs) I'm interested in like childishness within science. He was like a perfect figure because he was constantly described as like a Peter Pan who, um, you know, couldn't stop, like he couldn't be stopped from experimenting. So he was like this force of nature who would, you'd be driving in a car with him and he'd like play with the, like, brakes and the gas to, like, make different <laughs> patterns, which, frankly, sounds terrifying, yeah. but, like, Well, like, but he, but he was, you know, seen as this person who, he just had this big idea, which was that the Exploratorium should be a place where, um, like, kids could come and just, like, basically have at it um, within, but always within, like, particular bounds, because he's coming up with the, he and his exhibit designers are coming up with the exhibits. But then the cool thing about the Exploratorium was that it was like you could touch and manipulate with the exhibits as much as, much as you wanted. And of course, this idea has become like, de rigueur for a lot of children's museums and science museums now. Um, but in comparison to what was happening at the Museum of Natural History in the, in the beginning of the century when kids were being like paraded in front of exhibits and just like would look at the exhibit and then the people at the museum would claim that it had like changed their lives. <laughs> um, the difference between that and like what Oppenheimer is doing um, in San Francisco in the in the 60s is like a huge difference. Um, um, I, I, I think that what is most interesting about the Exploratorium to me is that in some ways, like the Exploratorium is still awesome, but it sort of failed what Oppenheimer wanted it to be, which was like, I mean, it, when he first started, it, it was free. Um, cause he wanted it to be a place where everybody would come, um, not just kids. I mean, it was free in part because he wanted like any random 12 year old who was just like walking around the neighborhood to be able to come in and then to be able to come in again the next day, if they remembered something they were interested in and they want to try to do it again. Um, so that it would be more like a park than a museum. Um, and also a place where adults could come to kind of like recover a childish sense of wonder, um maybe along with their children or maybe not. And in that way, it's like very hippie. Um, but and now it costs like, I can't remember how much, but like $20 or something. Like it's like, it doesn't work like that anymore. Um, and it's sort of like any other children's space that you like make a plan to take a child to, which like, you're like, oh crap, I better do it on a time where I can stay for a long time because otherwise it's not worth it. And it's so expensive. And you know, maybe mom and dad both can't come maybe it has to be just mom and the kid whatever like there's like all these financial considerations that go into it that was supposed to be a space of freedom and it becomes this whole other whole other thing which i don't think is frank oppenheimer's fault but um (laughs) whatever (laughs) um um, but yeah but yeah this idea that there is like a specifically um you know child like a, a sort of like a set of like para educational spaces where kids Uh, can develop their scientific acumen um it's pretty uniquely 20th century but yeah but and you can see sort of like after effects of it in like maker museums and stuff today or you know makerspaces
2: okay well i think that's a good place to wrap up so rebecca thank you again so much for talking to us sure really appreciate it okay so if you liked our episode today please 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 leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have any questions about any of our segments today, tweet at us at, at LadyXScience or use the hashtag LadySciPod for show notes, episode transcripts to sign up for our monthly newsletter, uh, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadyScience.com. And we are an independent magazine. We depend entirely on support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladiescience.com/donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at, at @ladiesciencemag and on Twitter and Instagram at, at @ladyxscience.